Good morning. Hey, this morning we're going to find ourselves primarily in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. And so if you want to begin turning there in your Bible, Luke 1, 5 through 25. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you or near you. We'd love for that to be a gift from us to you, uh, for you to take home and use that. If you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, you can find a table of contents at the front, and that's going to let you know where the book of Luke is, Luke 1, 5 through 25. We're going to hit some different satellite passages today, and so if, if you're struggling to find those, just write those down, and you can go there uh, a little bit later. Man, I, I don't know about you, but I love Advent. I, I love the songs we get to sing, the expectation, the tuning of our hearts to this sense of expectation. That just, it, it reminds me of, of what it's like uh, to have been there and to hear uh, the words come from Isaiah, to have this sense of longing, to have this sense of desire, to have this sense of, I can't wait to see this fulfilled. And, and, and within that becomes the element of, of hopefulness, becomes this element of hope. And, and maybe you experienced hope in a variety of different ways this week. I know as I was kind of uh, bellying up to the table again of this trough we call Thanksgiving, right? And just, I'm delighting myself in all kinds of ways. You got the green bean casserole, you got the sweet potato casserole, you got lots of other casseroles that don't need a name. You got ham, you got turkey, and whatever way you get down, it's smoked, it's fried, it's delightful, it's in my belly, right? And so as we're there and we're working our way through this, I found myself in, in, heading into sevenths with this hope. I hope this weekend brings text bags. Y'all, I just kind of reached the end of the delight I was willing to experience at the trough of Thanksgiving, and my taste buds said to my brain, we need Tex-Mex. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. And so I began to feel this, this hope that clearly is selfish and clearly is gluttonous, nevertheless, well up inside of me, and I began to think on on this hope that was so incredibly trivial, but in that moment, nonetheless delicious, and to be fulfilled at lunchtime today. But as I was kind of going through this and thinking about it, I, I encountered this article on the BBC, and I just want you to listen to the title of this article. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's talking about migrants who are traveling from uh, Asia, from the Middle East, from Africa, and, and they're seeking to make a life for themselves in the UK. And so they find themselves on these beaches of France, and what they're going to do is endeavor to cross the channel to make a better life in the UK. Listen to the title of this. It says, The Channel Beaches That Host a Lethal Trade in Human Hope. A Lethal Trade in Human Hope. And what this article goes on to describe is the difficultness, the difficulty that these men and women are willing to endure. In fact, last Wednesday, the day before that many of us gave ourselves to this rehearsing of thanks in all the various ways we've been blessed, in all the various ways we've been encouraged, last Wednesday, 27 people died trying to cross the channel. This hope that was calling them. This belief that, that, that had besought them, this understanding that life would be better, things would be easier, things would be more enjoyable, and they set themselves and they established their hope in the reality of this possible outcome, the lethal trade in human hope. 
No, as Christians, we come into this with this understanding that in, in reality, in life, that many of us have an unrealized hope. We have an unrealized expectation of things we delight in and, and things we want to see come to pass. But what we see in the confines of Scripture is a hope that is described as being steadfast, a hope that is described as being sure, and ultimately a hope that is realized. Isaiah, writing some 700 years or so before Christ, wrote the words that, that Katie Uh, read to us a little bit earlier in Isaiah 9. Let's look at them once again. Speaking of Jesus and, and what it would be like, what would ultimately bring them from exile, he says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And then what we read is the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so there's this sense of hope, this sense of longing, this sense of we can't live in exile forever. We can't live in oppression forever. But from the Babylonians to the Persians to the Greeks, and then experiencing roughly 60 years or so of Roman oppression, they still sit and they still wait. And what we find is that they have this sense of hope unrealized. When they come back into the land, they think, finally now I've realized hope. But it's not what they wanted it to be. And when they build the temple, there's this sense of finally now it's realized, but it's not what they want it to be. What we recognize over the course of Scripture is that God alone sets himself up to be our one and only hope. And God calls the hearts of his people to look to him in a sense of hopefulness. And that's what we find this couple doing. That's what we find Zechariah and Elizabeth doing engaging in the hubris of hope look at verse 5 look at verse 5 through 7 Luke establishes this setting for us he says in the days of Herod the king of Judea there was a priest named Zechariah and Zechariah's name means Yahweh remembers he's of the division of Abijah and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth and her name means God is my fortune Look at what it says about them. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So we, we come into the situation, and we've got Zechariah, and we've got Elizabeth, and their names are completely attuned and in line with God and their dependence upon him and their needfulness of him. And in the middle of this, what we read is this description that they're completely blameless, they're completely upright, they are Torah faithful. They're engaging in faithfulness to the Lord in every way. And it's not just Zechariah that's doing this, it's Zechariah and Elizabeth that are engaging in this same lifestyle. Now this should remind us of a couple of people. It reminds us of Abraham, it reminds us of Noah, it reminds us of a number of people in the Old Testament that are described as being blameless and upright. And so Luke is giving us a picture of complete and utter faithfulness to the Lord. It doesn't mean they didn't sin. It just means that's not their mainstay. It means their hearts were wonderfully attuned to God. In the middle of this, there's no sin described in their life. There's no shortcoming described in their lives. But look at what Luke says. He says, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. And this reminds us 
of what it was like for Abraham and Sarah. Abraham, who received the promise of God, I'm going to bless you. All the peoples of the world will be blessed through you. You're going to be a mighty nation. You're going to be a great people. Only one problem, you're childless. You and Sarah, you don't have any kids. And so we're reminded that the blessings of God flowed through Abraham and through his line. And then what do we get in the middle of this? We get this wonderful couple who's completely blameless, who's completely upright. They're walking in steadfastness to the Lord. And what do we read? They have this same affliction that Abraham had, that Sarah had. You know, there's this understanding about the time that this is written, and it it persists even in some circles today, that if we are without certain blessings, and so you're unable to to have children, you're uh, sick and you're unable to overcome disease, whatever it is, whatever form of difficulty you find yourself in, that it is there, that it rests in your life because of God's punitive justice on you. So I, I just want you to think about the reality of life living in, in, in this time before the turn from B.C. to A.D., the, the reality of life for Zechariah and for Elizabeth. They walk along and people are like, they are so upright and blameless. Somebody else walks up and says, but are they really? I mean, I know he does the temple service and I know she's got that knitting circle, but it is like a hotbed of gossip up in there. I, 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 I know they're generally good people, but isn't there something a little bit off on them? I can't, I can't quite put my finger on what it is. So they felt this stigma. They felt this sense of, we have been faithful to the Lord, but there is this thing, there is this desire within our hearts, this, this sense of longing yet unfulfilled. But Luke gives us a sense that this is never going to be fulfilled in them. Look at how he describes it. He says, they were both advanced in years. And on top of this, Elizabeth was barren. Now, if there's ever a couple with an impeccable resume of spirituality, it's this couple. We see that that, uh, Zechariah in his lineage is of the priestly line. And they see that Elizabeth, her line goes all the way back to Aaron. So there's nothing wrong in this. There's nothing wrong in them. Look at 8 through 10, and what we see is this picture of a hope rehearsed, of a hope rehearsed. So they're there, they're in Jerusalem. Zechariah is serving as a priest before God. His division is on duty. And it was according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by law to enter into the temple of the Lord to burn incense. Now this was only able to happen once during the life of a priest. And so there'd be 56 priests serving throughout the day, 18,000 priests over the nation of Israel, but only once in your life could you have this honor. They do it in the morning, they do it in the evenings, and the lot fell to Zechariah, and what he has to do is to walk in there with incense, and somebody else walks in there with coal, and they walk into the holy place, and in front of them is the veil, and behind the veil is the holy of holies. So you've got the lampstand, you've got the altar for the incense, you've got the showbread right here, and so he's walking in there. Now this is the moment, this is the highest goal he could have in his career. This is the defining moment for him. It's not going to get any better. He's never going to get to do it again. And if he's anything like me, he's thinking, don't trip and fall. Just walk. Left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. 
And so he's walking in there, he's approaching this, and he knows that this is the moment. And this whole multitude of people, all the people, they're gathered outside. They're outside the holy place. They're in the courtyard. They're outside the courtyard. They're outside the temple grounds. And this is their prayer according to tradition while he's in there making this offering. Listen to this. God of mercy. God of mercy, come into your holy sanctuary and receive with pleasure the offering of your people. How encouraging is that for Zechariah? How delighting is that, that he's there and he's making this offering and all of these people tradition has are gathered around and their prayer is that God would habitate the temple, that God would come in and he would be well pleased with their offering. So Zechariah has this as a soundtrack running through his mind and he's walking in there and in some sense he can recount what he hears the people saying and they're saying it over and over and over again. What we see in 11 through 17 isn't a rehearsed hope. It is an unexpected hope. So Zechariah walks in there. What he was supposed to do is to set the incense on the altar, to bow himself before the altar, and to offer a prayer on behalf of the people. Verse 11, it says, There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now the altar of incense stood for the presence of the Lord. And one of the things you'll recognize as you read through your Bible that it gets awfully particular, a little bit nitpicky, about what it means for someone to stand at the right hand or to be the right hand of the Lord or to be at the right hand of the throne. So what we see in this is that when this angel stands to the right of the altar of incense that he is communicating, displaying in his presence, displaying where he stands that I am the mouthpiece of God. Zechariah gets this. Doesn't need the angel to explain it. Doesn't need the angel to say, well, technically I'm standing 8.7 inches from the altar and what that means. No, he doesn't need any of these things. He recognizes by virtue of where he sees him stand that he speaks on behalf of the Lord. Now look at what Zechariah's response is, verse 12. It says, and Zechariah was troubled. And when he saw him and fear fell upon him, Zechariah is terrified. All his life he's heard stories, you walk in, it's like 15 steps. All you get are just like 15 steps. You see the veil there. You got the lampstand here. You got the incense there. You got the showbread there. All you got to do is just walk in. It's 15 steps. You're going to go in. You're going to kiss your face to the ground. You're going to utter a prayer. It's a good prayer, but you're going to utter a prayer. And you're going to stand up. You're going to clean yourself off. You're going to walk out. Zechariah, that's all you got to do. And Zechariah's like, give it to me one more time. He's like, okay, it's like 15, it's like 15 and a half steps, really. He's like, 15 or 15 and a half. He's like, all right, so it's 15 and a half steps, Zechariah. You're going to walk in. You got the uh, lampstand there. You got the incense there. You got the showbread over there. And and you're going to walk in 15 and a half steps. You're going to go to the ground. You're going to kiss the ground. You're going to offer a prayer. And Zechariah's like, that's really it. Yeah, Zechariah, that's really it. Zechariah goes in. He hits 14 steps. He's bending down to the ground. And all of a sudden, this beacon of light shows up to the right hand, to the right side of the table of incense. And he's terrified. He's terrified. He feels this, this, this fear encompassing him, and the angel cries out and says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Now, what prayer is that? Luke doesn't let us stop. 
So there's two competing schools of thought. One prayer is that he goes in and he prays what the priests are supposed to pray. God, send your Messiah, rescue us. The other thought is that he goes in, he kisses the ground, and his prayer is, God, bless me and my family, give us a child. You know, the amazing thing that our God accomplishes in, both, in, in this scenario is both of those things are accomplished in Zechariah's prayer. It doesn't matter what he prays. That's how attuned our God is to the hearts of his people. He knew Zechariah's desire before he ever woke up that night. You think it was my accident? You think it was, it was just happenstance that Zechariah ended up there? God was weaving and working in the heart and the lives of this couple, persisting them, keeping them blameless, keeping them upright over the course of their lives. He superintended so that Zechariah would walk in there that day. He superintended that all the men who had gone before him had, had tragically mundane experiences, and he superintended the condition of Zechariah's heart so that at that moment, when he said through the mouthpiece of his angel, your prayers have been answered, Zechariah knew what that prayer would have been. Do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, which means God is gracious. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. And he is singing a song directly to this father's heart. This father who has watched his brothers, he has watched his friends become fathers. He is singing a song directly to his heart. He's saying, I'm going to minister to the point of need that you have. You will be filled with joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth. Why? He says, for he will be great before the Lord. And you're going to dedicate him like Samuel, for he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. We recognize that God is doing something decidedly different in the life of lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth, that he is setting their child apart even before he's born. From the moment of conception, the Holy Spirit comes in even from his mother's womb. Look what he says in 16 and 17. He says, And he will turn many of the hearts of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, this should sound familiar to you. In Malachi 4, this is written some 300 years in this intertestamental period, before this period of silence, Malachi 4 Verses 5 and 6, the prophet says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So Malachi, 300 years before this, is saying, this is how God's going to operate. He's going to send a person in the spirit of Elijah to have this preparatory ministry. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the lamb with a decree of utter destruction. John's ministry is preparatory and necessary. Do you notice those, this, this work of reconciliation that, that John is going to be doing? Look at what he says carefully here. He's going to be working for the restoration of families. He's going to turn the hearts of fathers to children. 
So we see in this picture of Israel where families are dislocated. Fathers have left, mothers have left, children have disobeyed their, parent, their parents and left. And what he's going to do in the middle of this is call them all back to faithful. So we see this hope for restoration. And this hope for restoration isn't just this cosmic hope that everything's going to be set straight. It's not just this cosmic hope that somehow Rome is going to be dislocated. It is this intimate hope, this, union, this unification of hope, because we know and we understand the experience of what it is like to live in the midst of fracture. Very few of us have managed to, to weather this life, go through this journey, and not to experience the pain and the dislocation of relational fracture. Of, of the loss of friendships, of the loss of intimacy between our siblings and us, of the loss of intimacy between us and our parents, between us and our children. And this is what he says. John is going to work for the reunification of these things. He's engaged in the work and the process of restoration. And that is a work that he calls us to engage in even still today. He's turning the children of Israel back to the Lord their God. He's going in the spirit and the power of, of Elijah. He's turning the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready the way of the Lord. John is out there and he's calling people to repentance. He's out there and he's calling men and women to come and to see, to come taste and see that the Lord our God is good. Zechariah has this curious response. And in some sense, it's this hope created in silence. Zechariah says to the angel, how shall I know this? Not just how am I going to know my wife is pregnant, but how can I know these things you're saying about this improbable child that will be born? How can I know that these things will come to be from an old man and my wife is advanced in years? The angel of the Lord Gabriel speaks to him and says, I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. I was sent to, to sing to you, to bring to you this gospel message. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, I, th I think there's a way to read this that, that, that impugns Zechariah from our perspective, right? There's this way to read this and say, what's wrong with you? Like the lot fell to you, you have a lifetime of faithfulness, how could you fumble the ball here? How could you miss this? How could you drop the ball? How could you make this mistake at this pivotal point in your life? Why couldn't you just say, yes, sir, Mr. Gabriel, thank you, sir. Look at all the things in his life that had pointed to this reality not coming true. You can imagine the first, few years of the first few years of their marriage as they kept hoping and kept waiting and kept praying that, that a child would come. There's even the possibility, the strong likelihood that this wasn't even the prayer that Zechariah prayed. That really he's praying for the Messiah to come, for the people to be saved, and Gabriel's speaking to something that is so far different than what he's talking about. In fact, his life and his lineage creates this necessary steps and this progression for this reality to come about. So he responds, I think, in a very real way, just like you and I would. I hear what you're saying, but can you give it to me one more time? This seems a little bit out, 
what, what's like the, okay, so listen, if this awesome thing doesn't happen, what's like the second place awesome thing that could happen? Because I'm a man who's used to living with crushed expectations, with diminished hope. And the threat of this hope and what it would do to me at this age is something I just don't think I can live through. And so the angel of the Lord gifts Zechariah silence. He arrests from him the ability to communicate. He gifts him silence so that he can sit, so that he can think, so that he can reflect upon the goodness of the Lord. He gifts him silence. And and Gabriel doesn't give him a timeline. He just says, they will be fulfilled in their time. Now listen, while the priest is in there, it's a quick exchange. It's a short number of steps from the porch into the holy place. You administer the incense, you offer a prayer, and you leave. This isn't a place where you stay long. This isn't a place where you're caught up, stuck in this place for very long. And to be in there any sufficient length of time begins to create consternation and worry in the parts of the people gathered outside who this whole time have been saying over and over and over again, God of mercy, come into your holy sanctuary. Receive with pleasure the offering of your people. God of mercy. God of mercy. And the question is now rolling through in their minds, maybe God's not pleased. Maybe something bad happened. God's not pleased. If something bad happened, what are we going to do? And so they begin to feel this sense of, of dread creeping over the hope that long to live in their hearts, and they feel themselves beginning to say these words, even doubting their truthfulness of God of mercy. Come into your holy sanctuary. Receive with pleasure the offering of your people. People, please, God, be merciful. Please, God, be merciful. Now, the expectation is that Zechariah, or whatever the priest is, that they rise, they exit, they stand on the steps, And then they read these words to the people. So the expectation on the part of the people when Zechariah walks out is that they would hear him say, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's the pronouncement spoken in the morning. That's the pronouncement spoken in the evening. And it had been that way for hundreds of years. This is the expectation. They could even hear him say the words as he walked out on the steps. And so what they hear instead of those words spoken is that they hear the deafening cry of silence. And from the echoes, this silence would have created in them. We recognize that they come to the understanding that something significant had taken place said the people were waiting for Zechariah, verse 21. And they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And Zechariah is playing the, the, the most insane game of, 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 of hand gesturing, of sign language, of, 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 of just trying to communicate in some sense. He's like, and they're like, we've never seen a movie. He's like, And they're like, we don't get it. You're really bad at this. He's not able to communicate, but he's just, 
He's beside himself desiring to communicate to them this thing that has taken place. So they realized he had seen a, seen a vision. He kept making signs to them, but he remained mute. And verse 23 gives us this simple th- thing that just says, And when his time was, service was finished, he went to his home. Now, Zechariah doesn't get to speak until John's born. And I'm certain that Elizabeth has a lot of questions. What exactly did you see in there? I know you can write. You grab that pen and you scroll this down right now. What do you mean we don't have any scrolls? You don't look at me with that dumb face. I will slap the dumb off your face, Zechariah. I want you to see the hope in Elizabeth. Likely, somehow, Zechariah communicates to Elizabeth what's taken place. She's lived their entire marriage with the stigma of being barren. With every passing year, year, it's the reminder, I'm never going to be a mother, I'm never going to be a mother. So when she comes to understand and comes to know this is the plan and the purpose of God, there's a part of her that says, People are just going to have to see it on their own. I'm not going to tell them. I'm not going to communicate it to them. I, too, am going to enjoy the silence of hope with Zechariah. Look at how Luke finishes for us. He says, after these days, his wife conceived, and for five months, she kept herself hidden. She didn't tell anybody. Saying, thus the Lord has done for me, In the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach from among the people. She felt this personally. The hope we see here in Luke 1, 5 through 25 is not a private hope and experience of Zechariah's. It's the hope for all mankind. And it's the hope that when our Lord comes to us, he takes away our reproach. And he does it again and again. He encounters us in the middle of our doubts. He encounters us in the middle of our suffering. He encounters us in the difficulties of our lives. And we still hope. When Christ came in the first advent, John prepares the way, Jesus comes. We recognize that he lives, he dies, and he invites humanity to come and to know him, to come and receive peace, to come and to be made whole. But every time we encounter difficulty, every time we read a headline that says that the Channel Beaches host a lethal trade in human hope, we're reminded that we stand on the shore and we look across the sea to where hope resides. And Advent reminds us that this world is not our home, that the true coming hope himself, Christ, will be for us the embodiment of hope. John writes in Revelation 1, 5 through 7, says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, 
priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And we read these hopeful words. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him. And even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that today you would give us hope. As we reflect upon the hope that you have given to this couple, even so we recognize that in our lives we need hope from you. Hope in this world is fleeting. It is fickle. And it consistently disappoints. So God, would you give us hope? Would you cause us to rejoice in your son, Jesus? Father, we pray for those in this place today. They're trying to set and establish their hope on their ability to be good, their ability to enjoy life. God, that you would produce heart change in them, that you would change their desires that they would delight in pursuing hope that comes from you. God, we pray for their redemption, the forgiveness of their sins. We pray that they would submit themselves to your son Jesus, confessing their sins and declaring him to be Savior, him who was crucified and resurrected. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ in this place and in this hearing that you would sustain us with the promise of hope, the promise of your Son's coming, and the persistent abiding of your Spirit in our lives. God, we submit these things to you, and we ask all these things from you in Christ's name. Amen.